0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, I am here with Neil Morrison from a hot and sweaty Barcelona.
1: How are you, Neil? Uh, Hot and sweaty, David, surprisingly. Uh, But, you know, I think that's the standard sort of uh, setting for this time of year. So, uh, yeah, all's pretty good.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be hot and sweaty, there are worse places to be hot and sweaty than Barcelona. It's pretty hot and sweaty here in um, uh, here in Holland as well, surprisingly. We've uh, uh, had a massive drought. But what we haven't had is a drought of good racing. We've had lots and lots of good racing recently. Assen was absolutely fantastic. And uh, the Saxon was a pretty good race as well. Um, so I think we need to get straight into it and talk about... Um, the Assen race uh, MotoGP was the Assen race the best race ever the best MotoGP race ever Neil
1: oh, it's, a, it's a good question I mean in terms of uh, intensity over 40 minutes or what was it 41 minutes the race lasted from the first lap really until the last it was you know no holds barred quite yeah quite crazy the amount of overtakes what was it 99 overtakes in the lead group of 8 um, something like 170 I think uh, was the official number 175 overall throughout the whole race um, in terms of incident it would have to be right up there um, perhaps the only thing uh, discounting it from being say the best race ever would be uh, the fact that uh, there wasn't a fight for the lead on the last lap um, and and there was the impression the whole time that one of the guys was sort of controlling it at his own will, which was uh, obviously Mark Marquez. But uh, that's not really to discount uh, or to take anything away from it, because even the last lap, the fight for second, the fight for fourth, went right the way down to the final corner. So, yeah, it had pretty much everything.
0: Do we need to have a fight for the lead on the last lap if you've had a fight for the lead for the previous, whatever it was, 27, 28?
1: Maybe. I mean, if we're talking about it being the best race ever. Yeah, the best races that I can think of ever in history. The fight was for the lead on the last lap. Um, so yeah, but then I think it's maybe a, maybe a subjective thing. It, it was it was quite a random race. There was a lot of um, a lot of unexpected things happened. Uh, Although Marquez obviously won. Um, you know, I wasn't expecting to see Lorenzo leading for so long. I wasn't expecting to see Alex Rins as strong as he was. Uh, I wasn't expecting to see Zarco a little bit off color and not really engaged in the fight and. You know, for a couple of laps, we did get to see uh, the Marquez Vinales showdown, which we've been anticipating really for about two years now. So, you know, there were plenty of things to keep us occupied and keep uh, keep things excited.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the other great thing was to see sort of young riders treating reigning world champions with the the, dis- the disdain which they deserve uh, because the, you don't become a champion by riding around treating other riders with uh, with respect. There was a lot of... The seriously, physical moves. There was also, I mean, a, just just a terrifying um, a moment between Valentina Rossi and uh, Jorge Lorenzo when. Uh, Rossi sort of slammed into the back of um, uh, of Lorenzo ent- ent- entirely through Lorenzo's uh, faults because he he just basically lost the front as he was going through uh, sort of one of one of the fastest parts of a, a part parts of the circuit. But um, uh, there was also plenty of just plain ordinary physical moves.
1: Yes, yeah, there were exactly, and it's I think there was a couple of laps where there were upwards of 10 overtakes in one uh, you know in one lap uh, constantly changing the lead um yeah it was absolutely sensational um if i was to say best race ever i think you know philip island 2015 still stands out because that was uh, a fight partly between two guys that were involved in the championship and that went all the way down to the last lap and really didn't know what was going to happen until the last lap um so yeah i think it would it would definitely be on the list of top five races I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it was really something else.
0: Yeah, I mean I would probably put it in top three. Uh, I'd agree with that. Um, uh, what's also interesting is that it was like Philip Island two thousand fifteen, which I think is a really good parallel. Is that it seemed like um, Marquez had a little bit in hand at the end that he'd saved uh, that he'd saved himself, and this this seems to be uh, a recurring. Or a,
1: a recurring tactic in something which happens more and more uh, more frequently? Yeah, I mean, if you look back at 2017 at Phillip Island, that was another eight-rider uh, dogfight, ding-dong, um, which lasted pretty much the whole race. Um, but if you looked at free practice and qualifying during that weekend, you know, Marquez was, you know, head and shoulders above the rest um, in terms of times and consistency. And it was the same at Aston, really. Um, i mean his uh, his consistency over the over the free practice sessions was was quite remarkable quite astonishing um you know you would have to say that you know Mitzland's tires the fact that they're bringing these uh, these soft compounds which need to kind of be managed over a race i think that obviously has uh, quite a bit to do with it because you can't just go like hell from the off and uh, and expect your tires to last the race um and really from the first or second lap at aston i think mark has realized that um trying to trying to get away was going to be no easy thing um, so we decided to just hold back. And there were times when, you know, the pace was, I think, a second lap slower than it was in FP4. Um, obviously, the wind had something to do with that. The fact that everyone was jostling and fighting for position uh, was another factor. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that's that's been a bit of a factor in, in most of this season. Um if you look back to Jerez, you look back to Le Mans, I think Marc has won those races with, with quite a bit in hand as well. Um and indeed if we were to go back to you know the race that's just passed at the Saxon ring, uh he was really comfortable just sitting behind Jorge Lorenzo for a lot of that race. Uh whenever Valentino Rossi started Putting in some quick lap times behind him, I think he was about a second back. Whenever he started closing in, Marquez had plenty in reserve to, to pull away, put a couple of fastest laps in, and you know the gap was suddenly up to two, three seconds. Um, you know he's uh, he's not just been really good this season, but he's done it almost without having to to push himself to the absolute extremes and I think that's uh, that's something that's quite worrying for, for the opposition.
0: We'll come to that a little bit later about uh, when we take a look at how the first half of the season has come or how the first half of the season has gone so far but certainly it, it really does look like uh, he has a little bit a little bit extra that he uh, he can afford to wait to uh, to be patient and he doesn't need to take quite so many risks this season either another thing is it any coincidence that i mean we're talking about philip island 2015 philip island 2017 aston 2018 uh, is it any coincidence that uh, that these fantastic races happen at the old classic tracks
1: I don't think it's a coincidence at all, no. Um, Assen, like Phillip Island, is, uh, you know, it's time to get the old Assen cliche in here. It, it, it's a shadow of the track that it once was, which I think is definitely true. But it's still a vintage racing track in the, the second half of the circuit. Um, in fact, basically after Struben, you know, turn five, yeah. uh, when you get onto the, the uh, you know, it's that… All the way from turn five to the end of the lap is still some of the most fantastic, fast-flowing track, you know, or ribbon of, of, of circuit that we visit all year, um, and yeah, it's, it's it's just one of those circuits like Mugello, like Phillip Island. Uh, it's fast, open, easy to follow, um, easy to keep in someone's slipstream. Um, and it was really interesting, actually, after Aston, like, speaking to some of the guys that were, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh in that fight, like Carl Crutzlow, he was saying that, uh, you know, basically, you can just get into someone's slipstream and it becomes easy. Uh, you don't even really need to get your breaking markers correct every lap. You can be quite loose. And uh, in terms of where you break, and you know, basically, the, the slipstream will just kind of tow you along. Um, and we saw that during qualifying at Aston as well. You know, I think there was, what, eight guys uh, running around in, you know, basically... Uh, basically together just one big freight train and they all yeah. managed to uh to do the fastest times in that session um so yeah the the sort of the, the layout certainly lends itself to that fast uh you know freight train type style of, of racing that we've seen and um, we've seen it you know many times in the past at Aston, obviously philip island as well you know some of the great races of all time have been at those two circuits um so yes i think it's no coincidence at all
0: I wonder how much of a factor of the wind is as well, because uh, I mean both. Uh, well, Philip Arden is basically on the edge of an ocean. Uh, uh, Aston might as well be because there's well, you know, it's it's that part of Holland. There's nothing between the Pennines and uh, uh, sort of two uh, two or three hundred. Well. About four or five hundred kilometers away, and um, uh, uh, and the Aston circuit because it's all except for a, for a small riot, uh, row of dunes, which, which are at maximum about thirty meters high. Yes, the Dutch so Alps—I th- think you call them. <laughs> now I live next to the Dutch Alps. They're uh, we well, they go up to a hundred meters, and I need to take my oxygen with me. Um, it, it's, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so the wind is always a factor. It's always blowing there. Um, there are very few calm days.
1: No, that's a good point as well, Dave. The wind was a, was a big factor, especially when you've got like Phillip Island corners, which are you know require you to change direction at um, over a hundred miles an hour. You have that at Phillip Island, obviously, before you go into um, uh, the the hay shed there, and then up to Lucky Heights. I mean, those are really quick corners. But if you're in a train, you've obviously got a little bit of shelter there in front of you, and it's not so demanding to do that. Um, and I think Johan Zarco was really good uh, when he was talking about this. He said that. Um, he said that basically to do a low 34, which is the pace that Marquez was able to do in, in free practice, you know, you basically had to risk your life to do that. Um, whereas you could do your lap time quite comfortably in the 35 without having to do anything that was too risky. Um, and, I mean, you're changing direction. Is it Holga Haida into the Ramsook at the end of the lap? Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, those are basically two of the scariest corners in the entire calendar. And uh, when you have... Uh, quite a quite a heavy, healthy gust of wind that's making your front tire feel quite light, um, then uh, then, you know, it is a huge risk to put it in with uh, you know, as hard as as basically you can, you know, you have to maybe um pull it back in a little bit. And uh, it wasn't just the MotoGP GP race that we saw. We saw in Moto three, Jorge Martin tried to establish a bit of a gap early on. Um eventually said that the wind was so strong that it was more comfortable to, to work in a group. And then we saw it in the, the Moto2 race as well. I think Pecco Bagnaia had a pretty comfortable lead and he said then mid-race the wind really picked up and that had quite a big effect on him. And Lorenzo Baldessari, before his tyre issues uh, came into play, uh, was, was closing down on him. Um, so, yeah, I think the wind, you know, there were several factors that made it a great race. You know, I think the fact that uh, we were at a fast-flowing track, that the wind was as high as it was. Um, also, you know, we're... In the midst of a generation where the rules are so incredibly tight and evenly matched that we've got six bikes in the grid which really aren't that that far apart in terms of performance, um, what was that? Six different makes of bike were within 16 seconds at Assen, yeah, and um, that's the closest. You know, you've never had that sort of variety as competitive as that in MotoGP history, um, and uh, and then you had the fact that Marquez, after the first couple of laps, was you know only too happy to. to to scrap and fight with the best of them.
0: Be, ab- absolutely and well yeah I mean um, uh, Marquez never shies away from a fight but then uh, there are plenty of others who don't shy away from a fight I think um, th- th- this seems to me also that something is, has developed from from Moto2 um, uh, we now have a generation of riders uh, who actually came up through uh, Moto2 and you know back in the old 250 days there were sort of five or six bikes there were five or six RSAs Aprilia RSA 250s which Which were competitive, and which produced some sort of you know some entertaining battles. But in Moto Two, it's more or less the entire uh, the the entire um, uh, entire grid are pretty uh, are pretty close, and so the 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 fights can be much more intense. And you are producing riders who are much more much more used to uh, fighting in large packs. And Moto Three, it's got even worse because Moto Three is just a complete. uh it well i'm trying not to use curse words here <laughs> um but it's uh not it's just it's 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 completely bonkers um uh, so that's I think why the steam confusing. is coming out of
1: your ears there dave
0: yeah exactly yeah exactly you it's bad trying enough trying not to swear all uh, uh throughout these podcasts let alone um actually uh, uh, uh when describing a moto three race without <laughs> swearing it's pretty much a physical impossibility
1: Yes, I mean, you know, to to sort of give some more credence to what you were saying there, looking back at uh, some of the Moto 2 free practice times at the Sachsenring Ring uh, on the Friday afternoon, it was FP2, I think, and the top 17, maybe the top 18 riders were covered by four tenths of a second. Uh, I mean, we're really talking about the finest margins. Um, so, although Moto 2 bikes, you know, are some way off the old 250s in terms of proper, you know, out and out racing bikes. Um, they they certainly don't have that, but the class, the the sort of the sheer competitiveness of the class and the depth of field right the way down. um, I mean, I think that is a pretty, it's pretty good preparation for for what you're going to have to deal with in MotoGP.
0: Yeah. And even in MotoGP, the time's really tight because the, I mean, the the past three or four races, we have seen, uh, there might be one rider who has a little bit of an advantage at the front or maybe a couple of riders who have an advantage at the front, but it is extremely commonplace for, uh, I don't know, second, third, fourth, down to 12th or 13th to be covered by three, four, five, six tenths. It's 6 uh, It really is insanely, insanely close at the moment.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And, and right across the three classes, as you said.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's take a look back. Well, or, well, sorry,
1: actually, Dave, let me just get your opinion. Was that was Aston the best race of all time, in your opinion? Poor, and just out of interest, uh, what is the best race of all time? Um, always a good time to to ask that question.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, like Aston two thousand and eighteen was absolutely one of the best. I mean, it's always difficult to say which was the best race of all time because it's entirely subjective. I mean, you know, if you're a if you're a Mick Doohan fan, then um, uh, no way was it was Aston two thousand and eighteen the best uh, the best race of all time because Mick Doohan didn't win by twenty seven seconds. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean gosh, you've put me on the spot. I've got to make a decision. I, I, <laughs> I really don't know. I think it's... Uh, I would definitely put it in the top three, and I think uh, the the it, it, that top three would include um, the two, um, uh, two Philip Island races, 2015-2017. Uh, but then again... I mean, uh, Laguna Seca 2008 to me was one of the great uh, races of all time because it was so visceral. It was utterly – I mean, it was literally life or death and that was um, – it mattered so much. It, It was really, really important. I think for Aston being one of the great races is the fact that the racing was just outstanding. It was so close. It was so good um uh i think for uh 2015 um uh philip 2015 making that one of the more um uh, more important races is the fact that it mattered so much you know it made a huge amount of difference because it, it was in Important where Marquez finished. It it important where Lorenzo finished. It's important where um, uh, where Rossi finished. It it, and in the end, it helps. It helped to decide the championship. Not through any uh, weirdo conspiracy theory, but just because you know Iannone beat uh, uh, Valentino Rossi. Got beat by by Andrea Iannone, and uh, Jorge Lorenzo couldn't keep up with uh, uh, couldn't keep up with Mark Marquez. Uh, So yeah, there's the uh, uh, and again for me. Looking back, uh, Laguna Seca two thousand and uh, uh, Laguna Seca two thousand and eight. Um, um, that was just that was such a turning point in that season. Uh, Estoril two thousand and six again, fantastic race, absolutely outstanding, uh, outstanding race. And
1: and that was the championship uh, was all on the line, basically, you know.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely crucial. You know, I mean Nikki Hayden's out and Valentina Rossi um uh, uh, ends up ma- ma- managing not to win because Tony Elias win. After Kenny uh, uh, Kenny Roberts Jr also managed to not win by thinking that the race had finished a lap early. Um so yeah, I mean it's it's really difficult. There are so many ingredients to uh, to to what makes great racing that um uh, uh if, I'll get, if I have to make a decision, I have to say that uh, no, it, it's Aston 2018, one of the greatest races of all time, but it isn't the greatest race because there wasn't enough on the line. It's too early in the season. Yeah,
1: I would go along with that. Absolutely. Um, I feel like we've opened a bit of a can of worms here. We could probably discuss this topic all day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would I would put it right up there. I mean, I, I still think uh, Phillip Island 2015, maybe Phillip Island, Island 2001, basically world championships were on the line they could be won or lost at that moment Um, yeah I think that those would maybe stand a little bit apart but um, for the sheer ferocity of the fight and the amount of drama the amount of near moments and, and sort of things that stand out in your memory when you recall it it's certainly right up there
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, to me, one of the races that stands out for me um, was uh, Valentino Rossi's race in two thousand and three at Phillip Island, uh, when uh, he was given was it a fifteen second, a ten or a fifteen second penalty? Ten seconds. And yeah, ten seconds, and he went on and and he found fifteen seconds in fifteen laps, um, which is truly an incredible, um, uh, an an incredible achievement. Um, So, again. That's, I mean, it wasn't. It, it was exciting. Just to, the excitement of that race was suddenly seeing what Valentino Rossi was actually capable of when he was willing to push it. Um, uh, was it important for the championship? Not particularly. I mean, I think it was. The, the championship was pretty much tied up uh, uh, by that point. But um uh, it was important for you know to for, for rossi to show that exactly what he was capable of so uh, yeah there's as i say there's lots of ingredients that go, that go into my uh, that go into making a truly great race and, uh, uh, but i mean in terms of entertainment Aston 2018 certainly didn't disappoint saxon ring 2018 more entertaining than you might expect
1: yeah to an extent uh, it was interesting to see the Ducatis uh, looking so strong throughout the weekend, um, although they did slightly flatter to deceive um, on uh, on race day, I think, um, after what we saw in free practice, we maybe would have expected Lorenzo and Davizios would to have uh, held a stronger pace. Um, certainly in the first part of the race, before the inevitable uh, drop in the tyres came around mid-race distance. Um, but yeah, I think there was never really any doubt uh, that Marquez was going to uh, do what he did, um, you know, his uh, his pace on Friday was just, it was taking the mick really. I think he was three to four tenths quicker a lap uh, on Friday afternoon. Um, kept his sort of cards close to his chest uh, through a lot of Saturday and managed to just pull off the pole position but, um, you know, I don't think that was a, a race that was ever in doubt but then the section rings have been like that the last couple of years. You know, you're never really able to draw massive conclusions from it um, because Marquez's superiority around that type of track is just so, so pronounced.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to see him gamble on soft tyres as well because, uh, I mean, um, once again, it raises the question of... uh, So, Marquez went with the soft rear tyre, which proved to be the... Tire, which had the duration of actually being able to manage the race, and most of the people behind him went with well, apart from Vinales, uh, uh Rossi, the Ducatis, they went with the medium rear tire, and the medium rear tire turned out to be the the, the tire which didn't really have the duration, and, and they were the people who were actually suffering with um, uh, with tire issues towards the uh, towards the end of the race. So uh, it, it's interesting to see. That these, I mean, the, the difference between the soft and the medium are so close. Uh, they're, they're quite often they're using exactly the same. Uh, uh, they're using exactly the same compounds on on certain parts of the uh, on certain parts of the track. I think. I think, though, I am not entirely sure that the uh, on the soft uh, the the difference between the soft and the medium. There was no difference on the left hand side of the uh, on the left hand side of the tire. And the difference uh, tire. The difference was much more on, on the right hand side of the tire, and then it's just a question of how you manage the um, uh, uh, how you manage the right sort of thing. Um, so yes, the it was difficult to actually sort of like see to draw conclusions from. Uh, from qualifying, when, um, or from you know, qualifying practice, when, when the race, things are very different in the race. When you got these thirty laps on, uh, on that one side of the tire,
1: exactly. You look at what Lorenzo was doing um, later in that race and he went for the soft front tyre and the medium rear and he was having real issues holding his line in certain parts of the track. He couldn't uh, get his braking right for turn one at all and the automatic assumption was always, well, you know, the soft tyre has just destroyed itself and, uh, you know, that was a stupid choice from him but then he later explained that actually it was the fact that the rear was wearing so badly in the centre of the tyre that he couldn't, he's, you know, so dependent on Slowing the Ducati down with the rear, using the rear brake, um, scrubbing off speed through that. That the, the the center of the tire and the edges had uh, had worn so much that, uh, that that's what the reason was. He said the soft tire was was absolutely the right choice. He was he was convinced. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a strange year in terms of uh, you know something we saw with Michelin last year as well. That it's not that sort of linear progression with the the, the tire compounds and the options that you know the softs, the softest, the mediums, the the you know the next level of that and uh, The hard's the hardest. We've seen quite often that um, you know there's a bit of mix, and they don't behave in that sort of linear sense that we would that we would assume.
0: Yeah, exactly. The medium is one step harder on both sides of uh, uh, the than the soft, and the hard is one step softer or two steps softer on the on both sides than that. It's much more of a uh, sort of a mix and match thing. Which is, uh, w- I mean, Michelin's remit was Bill's tyres. Which which you can race on, so you have to be able to race all three tires. And uh, I think the only tire which didn't get raced was the was was, was the hard rear. Um, all three other options got uh, uh, got raced. So uh, you know they they're doing what they were told.
1: Yes, it was one of their remits to come in, and the soft was not just to be a qualifying tire. That was something that they were absolutely adamant about. Every t- every single tire, front and rear, had to be. Um, you know within reason raceable um and you know you would have to say that that's that's been the case i mean i think i seem to remember aragon last year we had three guys in the podium and each one was using a different compound rear tire yeah um, and they based their strategies around the rear tire that they that they raced so um it hasn't always worked out in such a way but i think you have to commend michelin because when you go to the grid you've just got such a variety that uh trying to build the sort of narrative in your head Ah, oh, this guy's using this one and therefore the race is going to happen like this it's quite difficult and it certainly i think it really adds it adds an extra dimension to the racing as well i think
0: yeah and it certainly adds uh, a lot of work to the to the crew chief. So obviously with me uh, being in uh, pit lane being out on the grid before the before the start, you see Tim Walpole, Michelin's uh, press officer, running around, uh, sort of you know trying to collect information on who's using which rear tyre, and he when he sends us the uh, I, I get to see an early version of that, but I know it's completely worthless because by the time. Uh, uh, by the time they they start pushing everyone off of the grid, then everyone will have well, about half the grid will have changed, will have changed their minds and changed their tyres because uh, it, it can be really, you know, sort of two or three degrees temperature, whether it's a little bit cloudy, um, riders feeling and confidence and, and all the rest of it can make all the difference and there really is a strategy, I mean we saw Maverick Vinales coming through extremely strongly in the, uh, in the second Half of the uh, of the race at, Sax- uh, uh, at the Saxon Ring, and again
1: using the soft rear.
0: Yeah, yeah, again, uh, again using the soft rear and be, just being, you know, really, really quick. And again, we have to wonder what would have happened if he hadn't been, uh, if he wasn't so useless in the first, uh, in, in the early laps. Story because this he's, season yeah, absolutely, and I've, I mean, I've spoken to Wilco Zelandberg about it several times. Um, you know, they've actually worked on his start, and um, uh, they send him out in practice with a full tank and new tires to uh, let him get a feel for it. But he, in the race, there's just something which seems to which which uh, seems to seems to go wrong. Obviously, Mark Marquez uh, nine poles, nine wins in a row, uh, which is ridiculous.
1: Um, yeah, I think that equals the longest uh, the longest winning run at any track ever. Um, I was looking, I was going back through the, the sort of the the, the history books um, earlier this week to see what the longest winning runs at certain tracks were, and um, there was actually a good article in uh, Motociclismo, the, the Spanish ma- magazine, their website uh, by Nacho González, where he looked at the longest streaks, winning streaks at a particular track, and uh, Agostini at Imatra in Finland. Uh, that was a nine-year streak where he won every single. Uh, 500cc Grand Prix from 65 to 73 nine years and that's the longest so Marquez has equaled that
0: yeah which is you know amazing and if we go back next year um, uh, to the Saxon I mean you you just wouldn't wouldn't bet against it first of all tell you what first of all saxon it was a difficult i mean this there's sort of like a difficult situation with the where uh, with the with the track uh the adac which is the german version of the of the aa or AAA, um uh, the automobile club automobile association uh they actually they're actually the 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 promoter for the german grand prix uh, and they sort of sub-license it out to the Saxon Ring track um, to actually organise it. But they, the the the, the Saxon Ring race always seems to lose money for a lot of complicated re- reasons, mostly related to infrastructure and the fact that it's it, so much of the of the infrastructure there just isn't permanent. Um, uh, there has been a running argument between the Saxon Ring, and the ADAC, over whether it's going to be there next year. Um, uh, th- there was the uh, president of the of uh, Saxony the the, the Bundesland the, the the federal state where the uh, where where Saxony where the Ring Hornstein and Stahl is uh, he was there he had a meeting with Espelator there I think there's a good chance that we might see it next uh, next year what, what do you think Neil are we going to be racing at Saxon Ring next year
1: yeah there's a I mean if you Um, if you went by Paddock opinion on Thursday of the race weekend, it seemed that this was definitely going to be the last year. But by Sunday, there were certainly noises um, coming out of certain places that um, they were going to find an agreement to hold it at the Saxon Ring. I mean, um, basically, that part of Germany is bike-mad. And I think that really is um, the most bike-mad part of Germany to move it to another circuit. Firstly, um, the circuit, other circuits aren't really that great. I mean, the Nürburgring, the new Nürburgring is... Bad, I think we could say. Um Hockenheim well, It's just been absolutely ruined. Um and I think there would need to be a lot of work to turn that into a bike track as well. Um and then obviously at the Nurburgring, I think the you know the last time there were races there the crowds were just you know negligible. Um back when it was in the mid nineties. Um not only was the track crap um but you were racing to basically empty grandstands the entire time. Um so I think it would be within you know it would be the, within interest to, to keep it at the Sack screen, just because you've got uh, crowds in the region of ninety thousand, to hundred thousand on race day, um, and, and I'm not sure ex- of the exact figures, but from you know from memory, I think when it was back in the Newark Ring, you were struggling to get twenty, thirty thousand in on the on a Sunday afternoon. So, yeah, that,
0: that that was that's very much what I remember as well as twenty or thirty thousand. Also, there the just doesn't seem to be. I don't sense sort of like from. Uh, from race fans, I don't really get any real sense, sort of enthusiasm about about the Nürburgring. Uh, It's in a beautiful part of Germany, I have to say. I mean, I've uh, been riding through there uh, a a few times. But um, it's not like the Saxon Ring. The Saxon Ring, I mean... They really are completely mental about uh, about motorcycling, motorcycle racing there, and 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 have been forever. Obviously, it's the home uh, Chupau, uh, uh I think it's where MZ or uh, is where MZ was. Um, there's a long, long history of uh, of of you know of motorcycle motorcycles and motorcycle uh racing there so
1: yeah exactly yeah yeah when you drive into the circuit you've got um i mean you, the, the road that we were driving in every day is part of the old circuit and uh, this sort of tree-lined ribbon of uh twisty roads that you know kind of comes out uh, and goes alongside the the back street is in the circuit um yeah you do get a sense of the sort of history and the passion that that, that exists in that part of the country there
0: yeah, I mean, I think they they used to uh, when it was an old road circuit in the uh, in the sixties and seventies. They used to get sort of you know a quarter of a million people come to uh, c- come to watch. So uh, um, obviously that was in East Germany, and there was a little bit less to do there um, uh, then than there is now. But uh, but uh, even then, it's as I say, plenty of passion there. Um, the, the next question is: uh, Can anyone beat Mark Marquez at the Saxon Ring?
1: Um, not. Not that, no, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to take something really, really incredibly special, um, for them to do that. Uh, yeah, that, uh, you know, this year, no, obviously. Um, yeah. but with him in this kind of form, um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I think he was doing that with uh, with Plenty in Reserve, um, I. I would doubt if he, if he barely broke sweat on Sunday, to be honest. Uh, during that race, he seemed, uh, used to have it all completely in control. Um, yeah, and it's I would say, you know, Marquez winning the sex ring isn't such a big story, but what was really interesting was just uh, sort of the strength of the Yamaha's. has. In the last couple of years, uh, the M1 hasn't really worked so well, although I say that... Obviously, Jonas Folger was second, but the factory Yamaha's haven't gone so well in recent years at the Saxon Ring. And, um, yeah, to see those guys f- second and third, um, it shows that they are, well, even through a pretty ropey uh, first half of the year, Yamaha seems to have, um, basically through, I think, very clever riding on Valentino Rossi's part, um, and from the fact that they're really not that far off, Um it's just that last five percent that they seem to be lacking. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, what what was interesting about you mentioned Folger there? The thing is, Folger was uh, in two thousand seventeen. Folger rode an amazing race uh, on a two thousand sixteen bike, whereas the two thousand seventeen bike was uh, was much more difficult to actually get around the uh, get around the track. Um, and the two thousand eighteen bike is much closer to the two thousand sixteen bike, and all of a sudden, that's you know, uh, again, it, it, it's a lot. It's a, It's easier to hold uh, to hold the line in the long corners, and that's that's really what seems to have uh, uh, to have helped them.
1: Yeah, and it, it's quite impressive that Rossi has managed to put together a first half of the season where he's, used he this quite loosely, but you know, only forty six points behind Marquez, um, because everyone's spoken about how how the Honda's moved on this year with its new engine. Um, Mark is is riding as well as he ever has. And yet Rossi really hasn't done anything stupid. Uh, you know, there's been no moment, in public at least where he's thrown the toys out of the pram. He's kept at it diligently. Um and I mean if you're looking at performances the first half of the year, Marquez aside, I would say Rossi's probably been the most impressive. I don't think he's been the second fastest guy this year. You would say probably Davizioso um has been that. But he's made quite a few really, really big mistakes. Um and Rossi has just barely put a foot wrong, you would have to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is really this this championship really has been about consistency. The reason that um, uh, Marquez is leading has such a big lead is because he's been the most consistent. Um, uh, The reason that that Rossi is anywhere near it is because he too has been so incredibly consistent. Um, uh, I think what's also helped Marquez is that uh, everyone else has been getting in their way because you know we've seen. Do win a race? Uh, we've seen Lorenzo win a couple of races. Uh, there's lots of other people who, you know, Cal Crutchlow has won a race. Uh, the 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 Argentinian podium really was a real shakeup. We've seen both Iannone and Rins on the podium. So um, uh, Yeah, Get Zarko on the podium. All these people are taking points away from other riders, uh, and that's really uh, 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 to me. I think that's been that's been the. The biggest difference is that Marcus has been able to manage that best, and Rossi has been managed has been able to manage it well. I mean, despite not having uh, not just not having a bike which is capable of winning it's reasonably competitive the most in, in, interesting thing to me at, uh, at the other thing which both rossi and um Vinala said at the saxon ring was they were talking about uh you know the, the big problem is the electronics we you know we haven't had the the big update on the electronics uh it hasn't come uh but we uh, apart from the electronics the bike is pretty is, is pretty good and that's what's allowed them to to to, to be competitive and to be consistent
1: yeah it was really interesting listening to Rossi on Sunday talking about uh, Folger's performance of 2017 and you have to sort of commend the guy who's 39 years old and is still trying to understand you know new ways of being fast um, and he said that he went to basically Folger's settings from 2017 from the race and uh, looked at the tyre choice studied his lines studied how he set up the bike um, studied how he was managing the bike through the race and thought, right, that's how I need to approach this race weekend. He said he was going to have to give his second-place trophy to Fogger because uh, he had shown him the way. And there's a sort of, uh, um, yeah, you know, he's uh, he's looking at basically a, a class rookie. And Rossi's now in, what, in his 22nd year in MotoGP or 20, yeah. 20th year. Not sure. Sorry. 18th year in MotoGP. 19th. I'll get there. I'll get the... the the correct figure one of these days but I mean for a guy of that experience to look at a rookie and what he did last year and think this is the way they have to go, you know, there's a sort of a a levity to his approach as well which is, you know, another impressive thing
0: Yeah, I mean he understands that in the end, uh, succession racing is all about details Uh, understanding details and and learning learning from wherever you can from wherever you can find uh, wherever you can find some kind of uh, any get any kind of edge whatsoever. Uh, I think what a lot of older riders do is they get stuck in a stuck in a rut, stuck in a pattern, and stop learning, stop adapting. Um, but Rossi keeps on. He he's always had an open mind. Um, uh, I mean, it was interesting. I did an interview with Gilles Bigo at uh, Jerez, uh and it, he talked about. he was watching That's Tom the Luddy's first. Gritty, right? Uh, yes, Tom Lucci's crew chief. Um, had been in the paddock a very, very long time, um, but he was talking about uh, watching trackside when, in the first year of the four strokes, uh, two thousand and two, um, when there was the two strokes and the four strokes, and you saw uh, it. There, it was only really Valentino Rossi who was who understood that. Um, this was a four-stroke and needed needed to be ra- uh, ridden differently. it Needed to be braking differently into the corners, uh, and he was experimenting and trying to find the figure out the best way of doing it. Whereas uh, the old the riders who would grown up on two-strokes, the uh, Alex Barros's and Max Biaggi's, were um, you know basically trying try to ride these four-strokes like uh, like two-strokes, and they were running into limits which which Rossi didn't have. So I think that was probably a bit of a formative experience for him as well, in that he's learned that okay i have to be able to have to keep on adapting i have to look for wherever there is an edge and he he sees he's not afraid to uh, to to take help from wherever wherever is wherever wherever he can find it really
1: absolutely agreed yeah
0: Well, before we start, uh, we run down the state of the championship, we shall take a uh, a quick break. And then I think we shall go down and have a look at uh, how the relative strength of uh, uh, of the various factories and teams and how everyone is faring. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, Please remember to leave us a review and rate us as it really helps other fans find the show thanks a lot bye and we are back in the room uh, uh, right so uh, here we are first half of the cha- uh, well first half of the uh, uh, of the season i think it 's been a it 's been an intriguing season uh so far that we've had some pretty good racing um uh it so far i think it's fair to say that um the that mark marcus is absolutely the strongest rider this uh this year and the honda is a uh, is a pretty good bike but is uh is it the best bike on the grid
1: well i would say i would say probably not to be honest i think the Ducati is uh is the best bike in the grid um and the reason I say that is because Marquez has obviously been phenomenally strong. Crutchlow, it has to be said, has been a player pretty much every track we've gone to. He's made a couple of mistakes in races, a couple of costly ones. Um, but you cannot fault his speed. I mean, he's anytime there's sort of a lead group or a big group fight, he's there pretty much. Um, but if you look at the strength of Petrucci, uh, you look at Lorenzo and Tavizioso, um, you know, those guys, even at, at really weak circuits for the Ducati in, in the past, historically weak circuits like Hares, like uh, the Saxon Ring, those guys are still there challenging for the podium right up until the end of the race. Um, and, yeah, the factors well, Petrucci and Di are quite similar in how they ride the bike, but uh, Lorenzo is coming from a completely different angle. Um, and he's been really competitive at certain tr- circuits as well, Um you know, Honda still seems to be very specific. You look at Danny Pedrosa and he's had a, an awful start to the year. Um, Crutch, though, we know, has sort of based his uh, technique on, on Marquez um realized that that's the best way to get the best out of the, the Honda. But if you look at another guy on that bike who doesn't have that style, Pedrosa, he's, he's really not been featuring, um, well, anywhere near the front in the past couple of races. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the most rounded bike um, – is, is the Jakarta at the moment?
0: Yeah, that's a fair, that, that's a pretty good assessment. Certainly, uh, I mean, I, I'm looking at the if you look at the crash stats. Uh, then the top two crashes in MotoGP at the moment are Cal Crutchlow and Marc Marquez, or rather Marc Marquez and Cal Crutchlow, which would suggest it's not that great of a bike. It certainly still has weaknesses. Um, uh, if you push too far, then you fall off. Uh, so it doesn't do exactly what you what you wanted to. I think Pedrosa, um, uh, because it's um, it's the Ring, Pedrosa talked about the what they've done to the Honda is they've made the strongest points of the uh, of the of the bike. They've weakened it a little bit or they've had to sacrifice the strongest points to uh to improve on some of its weaker areas so it accelerates a little bit better but it's not quite as good on the on the breaking as it used to be um and that seems to have punished uh punished pedrosa pedrosa seems to have suffered uh, a- adapting to that more than uh, certainly more than mark and and, and more than more than Crutchlow.
1: Yeah, and you look at uh, you look at Mark's qualifying record this year. I think up until Aston, he had had the pole, uh, Texas, but that was taken away from him because um, he was penalised in that session. But you know his qualifying record hasn't been as stellar as you know previous years. and He even said that uh, at the Saxon Ring. I mean, I think his, he got pole position by two hundredths of a second. I mean, normally there he's uh, you know he's got at least a couple of tenths in hand on a one-off flying lap. Um, And He said that quite recently. They've tried to make it a more neutral bike, so they've sort of sacrificed, as you said, the really, really strong points. They're not quite as strong, but then its weaknesses aren't quite as defined either.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And so that, it's always, that's, that's motorcycle racing, really. It's about finding the, uh, uh, it's about finding acceptable sacrifices or, or acceptable compromises. And sometimes the only way you find out whether a, a a compromise is acceptable or not is uh, is by actually uh, doing it. Um, obviously, they worked. Uh, they spent the winter working on the season. Get on. They spent the winter working on the engine because it's so important to get the engine right. Because you can't change the engine during the uh, during the winter uh or during the season um and now they've got some time to work on the chassis uh we uh mark has been out on a 2008 or well a you know a 2019 prototype bike or, or, or well at least uh a bike with a with a carbon fiber fairing which uh to, to us is a 2019 uh, uh prototype that's uh that <laughs> i think that's how we define that we might see some bits and pieces of that coming through uh, later l- later this year, which would which would uh, maybe help some of the other riders. But you know, it's it's only really going to play into Mark Marquez's uh, I- superiority.
1: We might have already seen parts of those uh, part of that of that bike on Marquez's, but they've been very very quiet. Um, they haven't really said anything about it. They've been quite uh, careful of what they've said since Marquez tested that at uh, the test in Montmelo just after the the Grand Prix of Catalonia back in uh, mid-June. They had a one-day test in Brno after Aston, uh, where I think they tried that bike again. Um, Mark said he was maybe going to try some parts of it on on Saturday, but again, you know, he asked him about it and he was very, very hush-hush. So yes, they may actually have already found their way onto onto his bike, um, but... Yeah, the the silence around the Omerta, around the uh, HRC is such that uh, us uh, pesky journalists haven't really been able to find out.
0: No, and it's also extremely difficult to see the difference because it's not like so. For example, Ducati have got a new ferry or a uh, uh, sorry, they've got a new chassis, a new frame, uh, and you can clearly tell that uh, the, the the difference between the new frame and the old frame because the new frame has got um. Uh, Uh, it's got some carbon fiber insets in it to 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 modify stiffness um that's the same for suzuki suzuki have got a new chassis as well and you can really you can tell the difference between the uh, the old and the new chassis because uh, again they've got uh, uh, they've got carbon fiber sort of stuck to the chassis to, to to help tune stiffness um uh whereas the honda i mean every single iteration of their bike looks exactly the same unless uh, you get side on pictures and can uh, um
1: get the ruler out.
0: yeah get exactly get the ruler out and see that something is precisely something is shifted by a millimeter um and uh so yeah it, it, it's really really difficult to say uh, Ducati you say the Ducati is now probably the most rounded spike on the grid but how come there aren't two Ducatis leading the championship then uh,
1: well I think one of the Ducatis should be second in the championship um, but for if he didn't keep falling off yeah but for extremely costly mistakes at, uh, well Jerez wasn't exactly Davidio's mistake that was just more bad luck but uh, certainly Le Mans and Barcelona there was uh, possibly a win at Le Mans a definite third place in Barcelona um, if not a second yeah, you add up those points and then is right there. Um, and not a million miles away from Mark if you take away his, uh, his arrest, DNF. Um, and then Lorenzo, I mean, he just went completely missing in the first three races. Um, had he not been so thrown off by, um, the, the sort of the, the change in chassis, um, by the lack of uh, the 2018 aerodynamic fairing in the first part of the season, um, then I think you know we we would have maybe seen him perform as he did at uh, Mugello or in Barcelona at Qatar, for instance. Uh, we might have seen him up fighting for the podium in uh, in uh, Texas, and you know he wasn't a million miles away at Harath either. He was quite unfortunate. Um, so yeah, I think circumstances have really um, prevented Ducati well the the two factory guys being up there and Petrucci has had a really solid season up until Aston where he crashed out but he had been consistent and he had been I think lying in the top five in the championship uh, before then Um, so yes they haven't managed the season as well obviously as Marquez but uh, you know take Marquez out of it and who has
0: yeah, I mean, it, it, just look at the championship stand, uh, standings. We've got a a, a Honda, uh, two Yamahas, a Ducati, another Yamaha, and then two more Ducatis. Um, so yeah, it's it's it, it does look like the, uh, the the Ducati is an extremely competitive uh, uh, competitive motorcycle. Um, which brings us on to the Yamaha. I mean, we talked about it earlier. The real problem there is just the electronics, right?
1: Seems to be, yes. Um yeah, it seems that the chassis, I mean Rossi said from the the very first test of Sapang that the, the chassis is a lot better, helps him break into the corner uh, a lot more as he wanted to. That was something in the twenty seventeen bike that he could never quite get his head around. Um and yeah, they're a bit like the Honda in some respects. They're Lows haven't been as pronounced Their highs haven't been pronounced As pronounced either You know we've seen Very few races That have been complete disasters For the, the movie star team Like we saw a year ago Where there was a couple of races Where they were just Absolutely nowhere This year they weren't That bad at Jerez um, They were actually Pretty good at Barcelona And um, and, yeah, Rossi's been on the podium the last couple of... OK, he wasn't on the podium at Aston, but we've seen Yamaha's on the podium for the last couple of items. Um, yeah. th- and he
0: felt, he felt he could have been on the podium at Aston if Dovicioso hadn't run up the, uh, run up the inside of him.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, the bike isn't a million miles away, um, but it seems that last 5%, they really need to change their philosophy on how they approach the electronic setup to, uh, to push these guys forward, because it's been basically a year now uh, well, actually, I would say about two years that they've, that Ross has been complaining about the bikes and electronics. Um, certainly since, uh, the summer break last year. Um, they, they've been lagging some way behind Honda and Yamaha. Um, and until they do that, it's going to be difficult to imagine where they're going to actually win a race.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's been nineteen races since they uh, since they last won a race. even they've they've had plenty of podiums, but you know, nineteen races without uh, without a win is the longest streak. I think it's now longer than the ninety. What is it? The ninety seven season where they went completely without a win. Yeah, and uh, then half
1: um, their half of ninety eight. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Simon Crawford's yeah. win at uh, Donington Park, I think, ended that joint, That particular yeah. joint. So uh, yeah, basically, I think this is the longest since 97, 98.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean... what's the chances of it being even longer than that i mean th- there is all this talk of, of the, they have a big upgrade coming um but we've been talking about that for a long time i heard it was going to come at saxon ring it didn't come at saxon ring uh, you would expect it to come at uh Br- at brno um but would they try it in the race or would they go for would they wait until monday just to, to, to give it a proper test i mean you, you might also risk uh, wait if you wait for the monday test if it rains on monday then you uh, you, 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 it's still useless to you
1: yeah for sure yeah and it's been it's been quite um, yeah I mean the Yamaha it doesn't really seem that there have been many upgrades through the year um, you spoke about Ducati Suzuki you know new chassis coming in and um, and maybe that's a good thing that uh, that Yamaha haven't been doing that because last year it seemed that they just completely lost. They were chasing their tails for a lot of the year, bringing chassis upgrades. Um, I think the official number of chassis upgrades that they brought through the year was like five or six. But if you speak to some people um, within Yamaha, it was actually maybe more than that. They were bringing slightly mm. altered, uh, changed the stiffness here and there in different frames. Um, and they got completely lost. So maybe it's been a good thing actually that they that they've been able to really just work on this the base. And as you said a while back there, David, um, you know, both of the guys concluded that the chassis at the moment's actually really, really good, really strong. Um and, you know, Vinales hasn't really been saying that for a lot of the season. He's obviously got to sort of a place where it's working well for him. Um and yeah, if if there was something to come, I mean they're not completely out of the championship yet. Um but if that if that upgrade doesn't come, then you, you feel that they're they're going to be scoring thirds, maybe seconds here and there in the second half of the season. But uh, with a lot of uh, Ducati friendly tracks, a lot of Honda Honda friendly tracks coming up, yeah. yeah, it's it's going to be much of the muchness.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the uh, I mean, the, the other big thing in the uh, uh, there in the certainly in the factory Yamaha team is the fact that uh, there's all this talk about crew chiefs for next year. It looks like um, uh, Vinales. Um, uh, Vinales will have a new crew chief next year. This talk that um, uh, Valentino Rossi might be looking at a, a a new crew chief for next year, although I'm a little bit more sceptical of that than of uh, uh, than of uh, Vinyales. I mean, Vinales more or less admitted that's going to be a new. Um, uh, while praising his crew chief uh, Ramon Forcada, he also managed to uh, uh, say, you know, there's going to be a change next year. Uh, so yeah, it's expected uh,
1: that Esteban Garcia, who's currently working with Bradley Smith in KTM. Yeah. Is going to uh, move across to Vinales' uh, side of the garage. Um, and that is partly because uh, KTM are bringing uh, Marcus Eschenberger, who's working with Alicia Spargro now. Uh, they're going to bring him over to KTM uh, to work with Zarco.
0: Zarco is someone else we need to talk to. I mean, um, talk about. It. <laughs> yeah, talk to. Yeah, we probably need some <laughs> good talking too, as well. but uh, uh, Because, I mean, Zarco, start of the season, he looked absolutely fantastic, but he's just gone to pieces
1: he has yeah. since he crashed out of the lead at Le Mans uh, we really haven't seen the same rider since then a um, the guy that was consistently fighting for a podium I think he was on the front row of the grid every one of the first five races and that was a run that stretched all the way back to the uh, the flyaways each of the flyaways last year um, yeah it wasn't you just came to expect to see Zarko as one of the most aggressive guys in a fight and, uh, yeah, that's been really lacking recently. It just looks like a bit of a shadow of uh, off the rider we came to sort of love and respect. in uh, the second half of 2017, the start of 2018. Um, yeah. yeah. And there seems to be a couple of different factors at play. Um,
0: yeah, I, I was just going to say. I mean, uh, there, there are. Uh, uh, it seems that he's splitting up with his manager uh, Laurent Ferland, um His long time, his manager, his mentor, and it's it's hard to call him his manager uh, because he was so so much more than just his manager. I mean, basically, Sarko, I think when he was fifteen or sixteen, went to live with uh, uh, with Ferland, uh cut off contact with his parents. Um, uh, Fillion has this very uh a, a austere school of um um uh, a, 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 of management, where you of rider management, where you, uh, basically you, you're not allowed a phone, you're not allowed a TV, you're not allowed anything. All you're allowed is uh, you know race a, a race bike, and you and you concentrate on racing. Um, that's been extremely su- successful for uh, Zarko, but it seems to I mean he seems to be running almost into maturity issues. You would say I mean be, because he you know he wasn't exposed to real life. Uh, falon carefully kept him away from real life, and now. Now that Sarko um, is a man, I mean, he's, what is he, 26, 27?
1: 28, he just turned 28. 20,
0: well, there you go, 28, you know, getting on for 30, that would be an, an extremely mature, um, he should be a mature man. Um, but he seems to be running into all sorts of sort of, you know, maturity issues, issues dealing with relationships, issues dealing with his manager, uh, issues dealing with um, uh, with the team, and all of this is just, uh, it, it seems to be distracting him from, from being competitive.
1: Yeah, he came out on the Saturday at uh, the Saxon Ring and really um, hung his uh, old suspension technician out to dry, um, which is just something that you would never have heard last year. And it's That's- clear that he's, he's just lost. He's, he's looking for, he doesn't know exactly what the, what the reason is for this lack of speed. And for a guy that valued having no distractions uh, so much last year. That was clear that that was part of it. He didn't want his head to be clouded by distractions from outside the circuit. He didn't want his head to be clouded by excessive setup information he didn't even really want to know what sort of spec of bike he was riding he he just wanted to get on and ride it assess it for himself and now that these it seems that there are a few issues with him and Fulon I mean Fulon wasn't there in Germany um, and he's usually always by uh, Johann's side Um, to have such a pivotal figure in his career now missing, I'm sure that is a massive adaptation for for him uh to kind of get through. And it's it's also something that's a worry, it's a it's a distraction, it's something that clouds even just a little fraction of your head when you're uh trying to uh get your setup right for the race weekend. And uh I mean you know I think the fact that he hasn't been a million miles away is a testament to, to how good, how talented Zarko is. He's you know if you look at his last couple of races, he's been in the top ten on each occasion. But um compared to compared to what we saw at the end of last year at the start of this he's been a shadow
0: yeah and it's going to be interesting to see what happens when he goes to KTM because KTM I mean you know KTM is a factory structure and they are um i think much more uh harsh about dealing with these sort of things they, they they everything is much more controlled also they just have much more resources to actually manage all of these uh, various bits and pieces so uh yeah they're not going to put up with someone getting distracted by all sorts of external factors and
1: it has to be said last year aside um his Career has always been defined by quite extreme peaks and troughs. Even yeah. in his second Moto2 championship year, there were a couple of races where he was just completely gone. Um, do you remember after he uh, tagged Sam Lowe's at Silverstone Yeah, um, and was then I think he got a time penalty in that race the next couple of races he was just gone I remember at uh, Mizano he had a bad outing uh, yeah, and he then was, at he Aragon was, he, was, he was nowhere and you really thought what the hell is going on with this guy he's just uh, the pressure's kind of got to him but he, then he responded and came back and th- finished the season quite majestically so um, yeah it'll be interesting to see how Zarko's uh, second half of the year pans out because uh, there's you know, some Certainly, some big hurdles to kind of overcome,
0: yeah, and also I think the, uh, the, the the middle, because I remember sort of in the middle of last year he was I think that was his weakest part of the uh, of the season um, there's a bunch of tracks here which he just on somehow doesn't seem to particularly gel with, and that that might be a factor as well, but uh, yeah there's definitely a lot going on there um, next up Suzuki, um, I think it's fair to say that Suzuki's a pretty damn good motorcycle.
1: Yep, absolutely. You listen to Alicia Spargo, and he thinks it's uh, maybe the second best bike in the grid after the Ducati. Um, the fact that Rins and Ianoni have been quick on it um, would would suggest that it's a it's a pretty rounded package. Both guys have pretty different uh, riding style approaches. Um, they've had a couple of podiums. Uh, Rins has been consistently uh, one of the front runners. Hasn't always put that together in the race, um, but yeah, they've made. Uh, what was a really uh, quite a good package at the end of last year with uh, a new stronger engine uh, it seems to be a lot better and um with sylvain guintoli as the the factory test rider and um, with tom o'kane formerly alice spargo's crew chief uh, with him working as uh, uh guintoli's test uh, team i mean that's a pretty good uh, pretty good place to, to try things out and to develop things and it's you know Suzuki have been yeah really strong back to sort of 2016 level you would say
0: yeah you would have to bet on Suzuki getting a win uh in the foreseeable future I don't know about soon but I mean you know the bike is uh that that, that bike looks capable of winning a race uh Ianoni um on his day Ianoni is outstanding uh not on his day he's not quite so outstanding um which I think is you know sort of he's basically uh, basically his problem uh rinch crashed too often um but when he hasn't crashed he's been uh he's often been extremely uh, extremely strong and i think uh, also justified uh suzuki's decision to keep him for uh, for next year
1: yeah, I would say so. Absolutely, his performance at Aston alone was was quite impressive, and uh, he can count himself as one of the the unluckiest guys on the grid at Sachsenring because I believe he had the pace to challenge for the podium there as well. Had he not been taken out in the first lap by uh, Paul yeah. Spargaro?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, actually, it's worth talking to uh, talking about KTM because I mean, uh, Paul Spargaro topping warm up on Sunday morning at Sachsenring that is a real sign um, of progress for, for for ktm they are finally starting to um uh, you know sort of get places
1: yeah it was a shaky start to the year for ktm um i think they were almost victims of the their own success at the end of 2017 and were expecting to very much kick on from where they finished last year which was on the edge of the top 10 um, but the fact that suzuki has come in uh, so strong this year and um, the fact that, uh, the satellite Ducatis are better than the satellite Ducatis on last year's grid. Um,
0: yeah, the, I mean, Jack Miller, Alvaro, Bautista have both yeah, been really, really strong.
1: Yeah, they've just, uh, you know, they found it quite difficult to reach that level again. Um, but if you look at where they've finished from the leader, I mean, they really haven't been that far away. They've been struggling to make up... Um, you know, to be inside the top ten, I think um Calio had a tenth that Hareth Smith was tenth there on Sunday at, at the Saxon ring. Um, but if you look at how far they've been away from the race winner, they've been, you know, really a lot closer than they were say this time last year. Um I think I, I was calculating um, their distance from the leader in the first five races this year because the champion their positions weren't so impressive. But if you compared it to the same five races last year they were about twenty twenty seconds closer on average. Uh, which is to, a, a, just astounding. Yeah, which is quite an astonishing uh, jump up. And it has been a few times uh, this year speaking to Bradley Smith and he said, like, look, the results haven't been there, but um, we are improving quite a lot. And the fact that they're now consistently there in the point scoring positions, um, we always know that it's difficult to make that next step after you get yourself in the sort of ballpark, the rough ballpark, then making those really small... Incremental improvements are, Is really difficult And it should be interesting The start of The second half of the season In Austria Sorry in Brno um, Because both Paul and Bradley Expect to have uh, The bike that Callio Has been racing in the past two Will they get audience. it at Brno
0: Will they get it at Brno Or will I Will they have to wait Until Austria Their home Grand Prix Oh,
1: Maybe it'll be Austria I'm not too sure
0: yeah, I mean, I, I understood that it was going to be Austria, but uh, it would also make it a lot, make it a lot more sense for it to, to be Austria. Although I think they'd actually get more benefit from it from, um, uh, from from actually racing the new bike and the new engine uh, with the counter-rotating uh, uh, crankshaft. It'll be rotating backwards instead of forwards, um, which um, means the bike doesn't wheelie as much, and it makes it it makes it a lot more agile because the the, the crankshaft sort of counter. Uh, um, uh, counters what's the word there's a word i'm looking for but anyway it basically can- cancels that was the word that's a really difficult word uh, it cancels out some of the gyroscopic effects of the wheels um uh, makes it a little bit more uh, a little bit more agile so it's going to be which would be a huge benefit at, uh, at bruno as well but um uh, we should wait and see so we'll have to wait and see how much uh progress that makes um, it's a huge blow that they've lost uh, Mika Kallio though at that uh, a, a big crash at the Saxon ring and damaged ligaments in his knee and knee ligaments always take a long time to repair
1: yeah they do yeah and it's yeah it's not just a case of getting another guy to jump in and test Kallio uh, obviously had has watched the RC16 uh, grow he's basically grown with it in the last couple of years and uh, the amount of sort of uh, expertise and, and feedback that he can give um, in terms of Given that uh, test team a, a proper direction um, is is close to invaluable, so yeah, that's a big blow for them.
0: Uh, finally, Aprilia, what do we think of it? I mean, Aprilia. First of all, I mean. They signed Scott Redding and then sort of sack him basically after about three races. Or, well, they don't sack him, but they uh, basically make a decision that uh, that they're going to be uh, have someone else riding their bike uh, before Redding has even had a chance to uh, sort of prove himself. Alastair Spargo has been really fast at some uh, and competitive at some circuits, but has uh, again crashed quite a lot, uh, hurt himself badly, hurt himself badly at, uh, at the Saxon Ring as well. Um, uh, Scott Ridding just hasn't got on with the bike and is now uh, doing a little bit better, but only by completely abandoning any pre- uh, pretence at at developing or or um, uh, going for a, going for a result. He's he's sort of you know just approaching each weekend as a as a new weekend.
1: Sure. It's another case of um, not really building on the promise that they've got there. We said that so much about it pretty last year, um, but at least last year they were occasionally scoring top six finishes. Um, this year, like KTM, I think they've been, um, well, they've been a victim of, of Suzuki's success. Um, there's just now more competitive bikes in the grid that they have to, to make their way through. Um and yeah, there's just been a couple of really frustrating moments that they haven't been able to show their potential. I mean, um, Spargo feels that he could have been on the podium at Jerez. He was fighting with He, he, could, he feels he could have been fighting with the O'Neill and Rossi in that, what was eventually the podium fight at Jerez, only for the bike to break in the first lap. Um, he went with the wrong tyre at Aston after he'd qualified in the top seven. He feels he could have been in that top group. So yeah, there's a couple of really frustrating moments when the potential wasn't fulfilled um and it's just been yeah it's just been one massive what if the first half of the year
0: yeah exactly i mean uh, what do you expect next year when eononi uh, joins bargro is that will they see significant improvement because also i can see um Iannone, it does not have the equanimity of character to um uh calmly accept that things are not quite going uh g- quite right and um uh, uh sit there patiently and wait for things to improve uh, i can't see him uh i can see well i can see the toys coming out of the pram quite regularly
1: yeah there's been a talk among aprilia uh, uh, among uh, the riders and uh well management that they need to sort of approach things a little bit differently um terms of just keeping cool and managing the weekend in the right way um, that's something that Romano Albesiano, the technical chief said after the race in Barcelona that they just need to be more calm during the weekend and we know Alicia Spargo is a very uh, uh, emotional guy yeah um, same as his brother Paul yeah can get frustrated quite easily yeah um, and I think that yes, they're going to need to work on that. And Spargo was interesting when he was talking about uh, losing his crew chief, Marcus Eschenbacher, to, um, to KTM. He said he's a super, super smart guy, really good crew chief. Technical knowledge is excellent, but perhaps how he manages the weekend, knowing when to test things and how to manage the tire allocation, that would not be perhaps a strong point. That's what Spargo said anyway. Um, yeah. So also it looks like Aprilia are going to try and create their own test team for next year with a competitive test rider they obviously want Scott Redding to assume those duties he doesn't seem so keen um, but um, yeah it seems they're going to try and have that as well and that would only benefit them in 2019 as you know as will Ianone, you know having to uh, Scott Redding I think is a really good rider um, but Ian is you know he's a former race winner yeah um, in MotoGP and also brings a kind of experience of being a factory rider at both Jakandi and Suzuki. And that'll be, that'll be, I think helpful for a pretty as well
0: yeah I mean there's also talk that uh, uh, Aprilia will be reducing their support for their World Superbike programme and that might also create a little bit more space, a little bit more um, uh, uh, a few more resources because uh, Aprilia are not exactly a massive factory, um, it might allow them to concentrate sort of you know on one championship and, uh, and, and try to improve there but uh, it's, um, uh, they've got a fairly tough road ahead of them I
1: think yep I would say so
0: now Normally, we do winners and losers of the uh, uh, of the uh, last race, but it's been a couple of races since we did a MotoGP podcast. So we have to go to the winners and losers of the first half of the season. Um, Neil, who is your winner for the first nine races of the 2018 MotoGP season?
1: Well, the obvious answer is Mark Marquez, 46-point lead, five wins from nine, two other second places, um, riding as well as he ever has. Um, But I'm going to go for the man that is uh, second in the championship, Valentino Rossi, just because when he started the season, he and Yamaha seemed so lost. His testing performances were pretty rotten uh, on the whole, Um, yet he has managed to put together a first half of the season of consistency and has only really improved in strength um, from... I guess, around Harest. He's been uh, kind of a mainstay in the podium uh, since then. And uh, there's a couple of performances this year where he's just been head and shoulders above and better than Vat Maverick Vinales and doing things with that bike that maybe shouldn't uh, have been possible. Um, thinking back to, to certainly uh, Mugello and to, uh, to yeah, Barcelona. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, Mugello, his race at Mugello was just outstanding. That was the old Rossi. That was, um, that was really exceptional
1: yeah um, and, and
0: all him not the bike sure
1: and i think just his approach has been quite admirable he hasn't uh certainly in public he hasn't been throwing the toys out of the pram um he's been building it could have been so easy after the frustrations of last year at the start of this year to just get really demotivated and think oh you know i'm 39 years old i don't need this nonsense anymore and i'm sure there's been quite a few of those moments but he's rarely showed it um and he's just stuck at it ably and he's just been very clever with how he's approached the year. Um, not done anything too stupid. Not thrown away any results. He's had one DNF, but or one non-score. But that was sort of the result of the the Marquez collision in Argentina. Um, so yeah, I think Rossi has played it really well. He's done as much as really I think as possible with that Yamaha uh, so far this year. So he gets my uh, vote.
0: Uh, that's a th- that is a pretty good shout, Neil. Um, I mean, a- again, Mark Marquez is the obvious uh, is the obvious. Uh, uh, is the obvious candidate for all the reasons you said but I'm still going to go with um, uh, Jorge Lorenzo because of all the things which Lorenzo has done Um, uh, certainly the first few races of the season uh, people were writing him off as being you know he's never going to win on the ducati he's no good he can't uh, he, he can lead a few laps at the start and but uh, but that's it um uh, his uh, tenure at ducati has been a disaster um he gets to he gets to mugello um he gets the the tank pad the pad around the front of the uh, or, or the back of the fuel tank which uh, uh, which he's been asking for for basically about a year um, uh, which allows him to support himself under braking and he dominates at Mugello he dominates at Barcelona they were both I mean the, the wins were uh, there was no question he was going to win those races he was very strong at Aston and the Saxon ring especially Assen. I mean Assen is a track where Lorenzo has a history he, of doing really poorly because you know, that was the place he lost his mojo in 2013 when he fell off and uh, broke his collarbone and then came back, um, uh, uh, and raced there. I think that uh, he's been carrying that for a while. Uh, he's basically redeemed his reputation, I think, um, uh, in the second half of, uh, of, uh, uh, of 2000 or in the first half of the 2018 season. Then he goes and scores a, um, uh, uh, pulls off a coup signing for Honda at um uh, at, at Magello and I think uh it's it's hard to see past how um I mean, yeah, our opinions of him have, have, have turned basically 180 degrees on um, on Lorenzo from the start of the season until until now. I mean, now at the start of the season you say he's not going to win any races. Now you would say, well, you know, how many more could he win? Two, three, four. There's a few races where you've got to, you've got a you know you're, you're penciling his name into the into the winners uh, into the winner circle.
1: He's the winner. What about losers? I'm going to go with Lorenzo's teammate, David just because after preseason, after the first race, it seemed that he was going to be the man to take the fight to Marc Marquez. And I think that he's had the package to do so. Um, the Ducati bike now is, is better than it's ever been, um, in large part to his, uh, his feedback, his development. Um, but in certain crucial moments, he has made mistakes. And not made mistakes when a possible fourth or fifth was on the cards. Made mistakes when second, first uh, was within his reach. And um, yeah, had it not been for a crash at Jerez, um, Le Mans and Catalonia, then Davizioso would, we would still be talking about a fight that could possibly go all the way. Um, but really, I think, um, yeah, those two mistakes, especially at uh, Barcelona and at Le Mans, are just so costly. And uh, so unlike him, really.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not how he won his, or that's how not how he ended up being runner up last year. I mean, you know, he was much more consistent last year and and, and didn't make those kind of mental mistakes. And I think, especially uh, especially Le Mans and Barcelona, they were they were just massive mistakes which uh, which which shouldn't have happened. Um, uh, what about you, Div? Uh, for me for me for me I have to say it's uh, Joan Zarco. He's almost the opposite of uh, Jorge Lorenzo. Start of the season we're all talking about so when does he get to win his first race and uh, now we're thinking he's not going to win a race now. I mean it's just uh, he he seems to have completely lost his way. Uh, as we were talking about earlier it's probably down to uh, personal problems he should have a MotoGP win under his belt you know he should have a victory just given the strength of his riding from the uh, uh, from the first couple of races and he still doesn't have one and now he looks like a, a perpetual seventh or eighth place rider um and that's not acceptable for a rider who is so incredibly talented
1: yeah tough to argue with that eh
0: yeah 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 right well thank you very much Neil it's been um, uh, a pleasure thank you also to you listeners um, if you are not following us uh, on the social medias then you should definitely be doing that um, uh, at paddock Pass pod on twitter and facebook.com slash paddock podcast make sure that you rate us and please give us a review saying uh, how amazing we are on your uh, the, your podcast provider of choice or whatever it might be Apple podcast podcasts or whatever uh google play those sort of things um uh, thank you very much and hopefully we will have another podcast soon before the start before we return at bruno thank you and goodbye and i've got to try and not interrupt you now
1: (laughs) yes i'll give you a virtual spanking around the head if, uh, if you cut in across
0: right here we go um